It is so good to finally be here. We've had this scheduled for quite some time, and I am incredibly excited for this week uh, to get to know you a little bit better and to spend some time with you this week and to especially talk about to talk about Jesus. So thank you to the elders. Thank you to the ministry staff. Thank you to uh, the deacons who invited me. I appreciate so very much you uh, making room in your life and your schedule for this week. Um, especially if you're a parent, I always like to thank parents uh, for being up early on a Sunday morning, especially those that had to get their young people out of bed and, and get them here. I know that that's not easy. I heard a story about a mom who uh, had a really hard time getting her son up out of bed, getting him ready for, for Bible class and worship. And one Sunday morning was particularly difficult. And she said, son, you have to get up. You have to go to worship. You have to go to Bible class. And he said, I don't want to. She said, tell me why. Give me one good reason why you don't want to go. He said, well, I don't like the people there very much. And I don't think they like me. I just don't want to go. I don't feel like it. I don't want to give up. And he said, give me one good reason why I should go. And she said, well, I'll give you two. Number one, you're 35 years old. And number two, you're the preacher. So you have to, you have to go. You know, it's... It's not as common as it used to be to have gospel meetings, um, but we have to be gospel people. And if we're going to have a gospel meeting, if we're going to meet together and invite our friends and our family to come together, to be here to study the gospel, then the person we ought to be talking about is Jesus, right? The person we must be talking about is Jesus because the gospel is all about Jesus. The gospel is the good news about who Jesus is. And sometimes I think for those of us that grew up in coming to, to Bible class and to worship, those of us who grew up in church-going families, sometimes it's really easy for us to sort of take Jesus's identity for granted. And maybe there's some phrases and ideas about Jesus that have gotten thrown around our entire life, and we've just sort of said, oh, okay, if that's who he is, that's who he is. And we really haven't stopped maybe to think about some of those phrases and those ideas and say, well, what, what does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of Man? What does it mean for Jesus to be the temple of God? We're going to talk about some of those things, especially that John lays out in his gospel account. That's what I'm preaching through uh, at home this year as we're staying in the gospel of John. And really, we could probably spend an entire year just on the prologue, just on the first 18 verses of the gospel of John. It's so rich and so dense with information that that is life-changing. And that's what I hope that we realize is that theology, what I mean by theology is what we know and what we believe and what we think about God, it changes our life. It's transformational, isn't it? In fact, I don't know that there's anything as transformational as what you think about God. Who do you think God is? What do you think God is like? What sort of a God is He? What does it mean to belong to him? Those kinds of thoughts, those kinds of ideas and concepts, they will absolutely transform our life. 
And I hope that this week, that whether you've been a Christian for a very long time, you're a new Christian, or you haven't yet committed to following Jesus, that you will allow Jesus to change your life, that you will come and see what Jesus is all about and who he really is. So I want to look with you this morning at, in class, and I hope that we can get a little bit of back. I like starting a gospel meeting with a little bit of interaction. That way I get to know you because I don't, I don't know, you know what you, you know, are thinking or you know, who you are, and I like this sort of interaction in class. So hopefully we can get a little bit of interaction here in class this morning. But I want to start with three different stories from the first few chapters of John. Uh, We'll go back to the prologue during worship this morning, but I want to look at three different stories. Um, The first one from John chapter 1 and verse 35. So if you got your Bible, that's what will be John 1 and verse 35. John writes, the next day, again, John was standing, and this John is John the baptizer was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Okay? Now, usually, usually when the gospel accounts say that someone followed Jesus, what does that mean? What does it mean if somebody followed Jesus? Usually. Right, exactly, that they became his disciples, right? John is kind of funny. Like, sometimes in John, there's sort of things with, like, a surface-level meaning and then a deeper meaning. So, kind of the deeper meaning is, you know, they became his disciples, they became his followers. But there's sort of a surface-level meaning. What does it mean to follow someone? Like, literally, yeah, like, walk behind them, right? Like, so, like, follow, like, kind of stalk them a little bit. So, so these two disciples are literally walking behind Jesus because the next verse says, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Now, again, there's sort of two layers of meaning there, isn't there? Like, on the one hand, sort of the surface level, somebody's walking behind you. If you were at the grocery store and you're just walking along and somebody's walking up right up behind you, you'd turn around and say, what are you seeking? What do you mean? Like, what do you want, right? Like, why are you following? What are you doing back there? What do you hope that you'll find here? But there's a sort of a, a deeper level of meaning that runs throughout the Gospel of John. What are you seeking? What exactly is it that you want? What do you hope to find here? Why are you looking at me? Why are you following me? Why are you coming to me? What is it that you want? What is it that you think you'll find? What is it that you are seeking? And that's an incredibly important question, isn't it? What are you seeking? And I think that a lot of the things that John says in the first few chapters especially, he's really helping to introduce this story of Jesus, this good news about Jesus, to his audience, to the readers. And I think that this question not just is targeted to these two disciples, but might be a little bit introspective for the reader, for you and I. What are you seeking? What is it that you hope that you'll find in Jesus. What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. Now, this is the first time that we, we hear that phrase, come and see, but what, again, sort of two layers of meaning, right? Come and you will see what? Like, what's the surface level? Come and see what? Where he's staying, right? Where he's staying. They're walking behind him. They're following him. What are you seeking? They say, where? well, we just want to know where you're staying, right? Where, where are you staying? And he says, come and you'll see. But is that all they're going to see? 
They're going to see a whole lot more than that, aren't they? And Jesus is inviting them to keep following him. Not with it right here in the very beginning, not a lot of commitment. Just come, come and see. Come and spend time with me. Come and follow me. Come and hang out with me. Come and stay where I stay. Eat what I eat. Sleep where I sleep. And you'll see. Not just you'll see where I'm staying. Obviously, that's sort of the surface. But you'll see what? What is it that Jesus knows that these two men will see if they come with him and follow him? What do you think he knows that they will see? Who he is, exactly right. That he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ, right? And he knows that if they have eyes to see and ears to hear, if they have open minds and open hearts, that all they have to do is come with him, hang out with him, be with him, spend time with him, eat what he eats, sleep where he sleeps, watch what he's doing, and listen to what he's saying, that if they have eyes to see and ears to hear, they will see that Jesus really is who, not only who he claims to be, but that Jesus is the one who can fulfill what it is that they are seeking, right? What are you seeking? And why is it that you think that maybe you'll find that in Jesus? Why is it that you think that maybe the things that you're seeking can be found in Jesus? And Jesus says, come and you'll see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Now, verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Okay, we know Andrew, right? Simon Peter's brother, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the what? The Messiah, which means Christ. Neither of those words maybe mean a whole lot to English speakers today. What does Messiah mean? What does Messiah mean or Christ? They mean the same thing. Anointed one, chosen one, right? So that God, and literally, you know, in the Old Testament, they would anoint someone with oil, right? They would smear oil, they pour and smear oil on their head. And what was that? Two kinds of people that they would do that to. Kings and priests, right? Kings and priests were anointed. And the Messiah, the prophets told us that the Messiah was sort of going to be both, right? King, descendant of David, the one who would take David's throne and his seat and that would restore the people, deliver them. Like David delivered the people from Goliath, there was going to be another descendant of David who's going to take David's seat on the throne and who's going to be the king and the deliverer, but he's also going to be a priest, right? Because he's going to take away the sin of the people and change their hearts, take out their heart of stone, and give them a heart of flesh, and the Spirit of God is going to be poured out on the people. So all of these sort of expectations swirling around these promises about an anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ. And Andrew is a disciple of John the Baptist, right? John the Baptizer. And John says, hey, that's the one who's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Andrew and this other, they follow Jesus and, and they go after him. They come. And then after spending some time with Jesus, what conclusion did Andrew come to? That he's the, the Messiah, right? Because why? Because he goes and he tells his brother and he says, we found him. We found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. 
Do you suppose that a first century young Jewish man like Andrew, or like any of those who followed Jesus, do you suppose they would have questions that would sort of need to be met, some, some criteria? I mean, you wouldn't just say about the first guy you see, oh, I bet that's the Messiah, I bet that's the Messiah, maybe that guy's the Messiah, maybe that's the Messiah. It would sort of have to be criteria, wouldn't there? All the things that the prophets, that Moses, the writings had said, about the Messiah, about God, about what they could expect from God and from the coming Messiah, all of these expectations would formulate, would formulate all kinds of questions, right? Where's the Messiah going to be from? They, they knew that, right? Where would the Messiah be from? Bethlehem, right? Well, wait a second. This dude says he's from, I'm sure they didn't say dude, but you know, this guy says he's from, from Nazareth. Well, how is that? Well, wait a second. Uh, how, do you, how, how do you explain that? So, don't you suppose that Andrew had all kinds of questions? And after spending some time with Jesus and watching him, seeing the kinds of things that he does and the way that he treats people and the way that he interacts and the way that he knows God and the way he interacts with the Father, the way that he prays and the way that he talks and the things that he does, do you suppose his questions were answered? Enough of them, right? Enough of them that he was convinced he came and he saw. He saw that this really is the Christ. But then he did something else. After he came and he saw, he invited, right? He invited Peter. He said, he brought him, verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So, Andrew did three things, and I think we're going to see this pattern as we look at the next two stories as well. He came, right? He spent time with Jesus. He listened to Jesus. He watched Jesus, talked to Jesus. He listened to the kind of person Jesus was. He, he brought, he, he didn't leave his questions at home or his skepticism at home. He brought his questions and he brought his skepticism. He wanted to know the answer, I'm sure, to all of these questions. But he came and he had eyes to see and ears to hear and he saw. And he spent time with Jesus enough to say, I'm, I'm coming to a conclusion. I'm coming to a conclusion. And sometimes I think, you think that maybe in our culture we don't necessarily encourage people to come to a conclusion about things. What do you believe? What do you believe? Pick something. Decide. What do you believe? So the end of every sermon this, this year, I've done something different at McDermott Road where I preach at home. And every, every sermon I end with a moment of truth. And a moment of truth is kind of like when you come to a crossroads, right? And you say, which, which way am I going to go? Or when you've said things... <laughs> We have the saying, put your money where your mouth is, right? You know, or where the rubber meets the road. There are these moments where you have to say, okay, I know I've said all of this and I've talked a good game, but now you got to put your money where your mouth is. Now there's a moment of truth. Now you got to choose which way are you going to go. You've said this is the kind of person you are. You've said you believe these things. You've said all of these things. You've agreed and you've said amen. Now, now's a moment of truth and you got to decide. What do I believe? And so Andrew spent enough time with Jesus that he was ready to make a come to a conclusion and say, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. 
Now, there's still, I'm sure, moments in all of the apostles' minds where they wavered on that decision, right? Where they still had questions, and there were still days where they're like, I don't know anymore. Like, this guy, I don't know. He says some pretty crazy things. And certainly when Jesus was arrested, everybody scattered and went their own way. And there were moments where they're like, did I, did I choose the right one? Did I pick right? But they still made a choice. They spent enough time with Jesus to come to a conclusion and say, I see something in him, and I believe that this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. And that's exactly what all of the gospel accounts are doing. They don't just want you to read it and say, well, that's a nice story, right? That's nice. That's cool. I really like this Jesus guy. He's a nice, he's a nice person. If you sat down with the entire gospel account, and that's what I like to encourage people to do, read from the beginning of it to the end of it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, any of them. And you read all the way to the end. It forces you to draw a conclusion. What do you see in him? What do you see in Jesus? What do you believe? And so Andrew came and he saw, and then he invited other people to come and see, right? He found Peter and he said, come and see what I've seen. Come and hear what I've heard. Come and check out this Jesus guy because I believe this really is the Messiah. Let's keep reading. Verse 43. The next day, in the right place. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, again, Jesus doesn't just mean, you know, walk, walk behind me, be my stalker, be my shadow. He means, come and be my disciple, right? But it, it's another way of saying, come and see. Follow me. Come and spend time with me. Listen to me. Watch me. Pattern your life after me. Follow me. Come and see. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So what did, what did, uh, what did Philip do? Same thing Andrew did, right? He came, he followed Jesus, and he came to a conclusion. What was his conclusion? He even gives us a few more details, right? We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, right? So he's checked the boxes. He's answered my questions. Philip says, I've spent enough time with him to know that this is the one about whom Moses wrote. Do you remember Moses in Deuteronomy said that there would come a prophet who would be like him and that the people should listen to this prophet? Moses wrote about him. The prophets wrote about him. And Philip says, I've spent enough time with him that I know and I believe and I've come to the conclusion and I see him as the Messiah. I see him as the one of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's the one. He came and he saw. Sometimes our problem is that we don't come and we don't spend enough time with Jesus. To say, follow me, in that culture, in that time, if a, if a rabbi says to a young disciple, hey, follow me, it means leave everything and come and be my apprentice, right? Come and stay where I stay. Walk with me, like literally walk with me. And I think in, in our culture, especially when it's really easy to be sort of superficially Christian, right? 
that it's really easy to maybe invest an hour or two or three a week, maybe, to coming and seeing. And I don't just mean coming to a church building. I mean, yes, that, but also coming to Jesus and spending time with Jesus and listening to Him, watching Him, studying, studying. That's a funny word, isn't it? Studying Him. There's a couple different ways you could think about studying something or someone, right? You could study for a test, and in that case, when I... Sorry, guys. When I was studying for a test, it was usually just, I just want to learn this so I can answer the questions and then forget it, right? I mean, that sometimes is how you study. You know, it, it shouldn't be that way, but sometimes it was. But sometimes we study something and we're just trying to get all the facts so that we can answer the questions. And sometimes we study something because we really want to know. When you're dating somebody, you study them. I want to know what they like. I want to know who they are. I want to know what their hopes are and their dreams are. And by the way, after you get married, you, you shouldn't stop studying your spouse. Study them. Spend time with them. Be curious about them. Who are they? What more is there to discover about them? And that's what you would do if you followed somebody, right? If you, if you left home and you left your mom and your dad, you left your business and you went and you followed a rabbi around in the wilderness for years, you'd be studying everything they said. What, what do they think about this law? What do they think about this psalm? What do they think about this promise? What do they, what do they think this means? How do they treat people? What do they do when, when they're faced with trouble or challenge or difficulty or suffering? How do they handle it? And you'd be asking all of those questions because you'd say, if this is somebody that's worth following, then it's somebody worth imitating. And if you're someone's disciple, you say, I want to imitate everything that they do and say and their mannerisms and who they are. I want to be like them. I want to be like my teacher. But do we do that with Jesus? Come, study him. Hang on his every word. Be curious about him. Jesus isn't an idea. Jesus isn't a philosophy. Jesus is a divine person. He's a person. And are we curious about him because we love him? Not just because we want to know all the right answers so we can go to heaven when we die, but do we, do we really want to know him? Do we want to listen to him and understand him? And these men that came and they spent enough time with Jesus, it became obvious apparently very quickly. They didn't have to spend a long time before they came to the conclusion, before they saw this this Jesus of Nazareth, he really is the one of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. He really is the Messiah, the Christ. And, and then both Philip and Andrew have done the same thing. They came, they saw, and then what they do? They invited somebody, right? Philip went and got Nathaniel and he said, hey, you got to come check this guy out. You can't help it. When you're passionate about something and you're excited about something, you can't help but share it, can you? I mean, when, when I was growing up, when most of y'all were growing up, when you went on a great vacation, right, and you got back, first thing you want to do is share it with somebody, right? I'll never forget when I got back, Holly, my wife and I got back from our honeymoon, we wanted them to watch the, the video. It was like four hours long, and to us it was incredibly exciting. But for some reason, they didn't want to sit there for four hours watching footage of everything that we did on our trip. But, 
You're excited when you, when you enjoy something and you are passionate about something, you want to share it with other people. Now we've invented social media, so now you can share it instantaneously, not just your vacations, but what you had for breakfast. I mean, you could share all kinds of stuff, right? And that's what you do. When you enjoy a restaurant and you say, that's the best restaurant I've ever eaten at. I've never eaten at a better one. I'm just gonna keep it to myself. I'm not gonna tell anybody. I don't want anybody to have those pancakes except me. I'm not gonna tell anybody. No, I want everybody to see this. I want everybody to taste this. I want everybody to come here, right? That's what you do. When you meet somebody, when you meet a teacher that's, that's astounding, when you meet somebody and you believe this is the king of the world, this is the person through whom all the blessings that God has promised to Israel, they're going to flow through him out to the entire world. I want everybody I know and everybody I love, everybody I care about, I want everybody to come and listen to him. I want everybody to sit at his feet. I want everybody to believe what I believe and see what I see, that this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, verse 46. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Can anything good? Does that sound kind of like a little bit of a biased question, right? I mean, you might, Wes gets here, and the, Wes is from Dallas, and you say, you know, can anything good come out of Dallas? I don't know. It's debatable, right? Um, but, but if somebody says that about your hometown, obviously they don't think very highly of it, right? Nazareth? That backwater town? No. The Messiah is not coming from Nazareth. Nothing good has ever come out of Nazareth. Nathaniel had bias. He had skepticism, right? He was skeptical and he was biased. He had preconceived ideas about the Messiah. He had preconceived ideas about Nazareth. He probably had preconceived ideas about Galilee. He had all kinds of preconceived ideas, and he said, well, you know, I don't have much expectation for this guy you think is the Messiah because he's from Nazareth, and I don't, I don't think anything good has ever come out of there. Now, what's interesting to me is what Philip does and doesn't do. Philip doesn't say, hey, watch your mouth, buddy. This is, this is the guy that I think is the Messiah. How dare you say that about his hometown? Hey, watch your mouth. Don't have those kind of doubts. Don't have that kind of skepticism. Don't have those kind of questions. He didn't say any of that, did he? Why? Well, maybe for one reason, Philip probably had his questions in the beginning, didn't he? Philip probably still had questions about Jesus. Everybody has questions. Everybody has doubts. Everybody has skepticism. Everybody has bias. Everybody has preconceived ideas. Everybody does. And what we too easily and too often do is say, you're not allowed to have those. You're not allowed to have questions. Don't have questions about Jesus. No, no, no. Don't, don't have your doubts. Don't be skeptical. Don't. You can't have those questions here. You can't have those doubts. I'll just, mm -mm, shh, shh. No, you can't ask those. You can't have those. You can't say that. But Philip doesn't say any of that. What does he say? What does he say? Come and see. You're skeptical. I get it. You have questions. I get it. You have doubts. I get it. I understand. I'm not going to try to argue with you. I'm not even saying I can answer all of your questions. I'm not going to try to, you know, unravel your bias about Nazareth. All I'm going to do is say, come and see. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Great question. Come and see. Philip came. He saw. He invited. He came. 
hung out with Jesus, he saw Jesus for who he was, and so he invited Nathaniel to do the same. Come and see. It's okay. It's okay for people to have doubts. It's okay for people to be skeptical. It's okay for people to have questions. We don't have to answer them all. I'm not saying I have all the answers. You're not saying you have all the answers. What you are saying, what I am saying, what followers of Jesus say, I see in Jesus the Messiah. I believe that he is the Savior, the King, the Deliverer, the High Priest. I believe that about him. And I believe that if you come and you spend enough time with him and you listen to him enough, you'll see what I see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you, how do you know me? And I remember, I mean, Nathanael's incredibly skeptical about this guy, right? Maybe Philip's like, hey, hey. He kind of elbows him in the ribs. He's like, that's him. That's Jesus. See him? We're getting close. We're getting close. And then when he's still a long ways off, Jesus says, Hey, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael's shocked. You know, why, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? I mean, that was pretty easy, right? I mean, it just took that one thing to convince him. But he says, You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. When Nathanael came, he saw. And that, I think, is what Philip believed was going to happen. Philip believed that when Nathanael came, he would see. And I'm guessing that Nathanael went on to do the same thing that Philip did, the same thing that Andrew did. When you come and you see, then you invite, right? You say, hey, you got to see this guy. You got to listen to this Jesus guy. He said things, and he knows things, and he does things, and he's different, and I believe he's the Messiah. One more story before we close. The story of the Samaritan woman uh, in John chapter 4. So you got your Bible, skip a couple chapters over. John 4. Now, if you're familiar with this story, you know that Jesus is breaking all sorts of taboos and sort of cultural rules, right? by talking to a woman, one, by talking to a Samaritan, two, by talking to a Samaritan woman, three, right? And he's, he's here having this conversation with this Samaritan woman, and the conversation goes to her family and her past and her story. And, and then she asks him and says to him, verse 19, because he knew about her past marriages and her current relationship, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a what? prophet. Based on what? What he knew that he couldn't have known any other way, right? And so she's, she had come by accident, but she had spent time with Jesus, and she saw him that he was at least a prophet. This guy knows things that nobody else would have known. He couldn't have known any other way, so he must be a prophet. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you, who does she mean by you? The Jews, right? You Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So that was really the big conflict between Jewish people and Samaritan people 
was that uh, where the temple is supposed to be. There are kind of lots of issues, but that was one of the big ones. Gerizim was where the Samaritans worshipped, and Jerusalem in the temple was where the Jews worshipped. Now, you may not know that because the Jewish people despised the Samaritans, they despised their worship, they despised the fact that they were sort of half Jewish, they had Jewish lineage, but they had also intermarried with uh, Gentile people, and so they had mixed heritage, but they also had sort of mixed their religion with the religions of the land, at least that's how the Jews saw it, and they were worshiping in a place that wasn't Jerusalem. The Jews actually went to Gerizim and tore down the temple there. They destroyed the Samaritan temple. So not only, we tend to think about the Jews despising the Samaritans, but it really went the other way around too, didn't it? That, that that hatred and bitterness, it was a two-way street. They both looked at each other like, you're not really God's people. The Samaritan people would look at the Jewish people and say, y'all are wrong. You're, you're sort of Judah-centric religion that's focused on the tribe of Judah. Your religion that's very Jerusalem-centered, that, you're wrong. You're wrong for that. We, we don't believe that. And you guys tore down our temple. And so that despising and bitterness, it went both ways. And so Jesus is really reaching across an ethnic, traditional, cultural, racial barrier to build a relationship with this woman. And she brings up the very conflict that's between them. And does she have questions? Yes. Does she have bias? Absolutely. Does she have preconceived ideas? You better believe it, right? She has all of those things. And she says, you know, which is it, or this is what you Jews tend to think, this is what we Samaritans tend to think. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So this woman had similar expectations. The Samaritans had similar expectations about a Messiah, right? But to say he was going to be Jewish, like he was going to come from Jerusalem, like he was going to be from the tribe of Judah, I don't know about that, you know, they might say. But here's this Jewish man who seems to be a prophet, and she says, okay, fine, when the Messiah comes, he'll sort all of these problems out. And so Jesus comes right out and makes the claim, I am he, I am the Messiah. But she doesn't have to accept that, right? Just because he says he's the Messiah, lots of people at that time claimed to be the Messiah. There were all kinds of people who claimed to be messiahs. And they would bring people out to follow them, and they would fight against the Romans. There were all kinds of people claiming to be the Messiah. So it's not unusual that someone would claim to be that. But then, verse 27, just then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? See, there's that same little question there. What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, wait a second, she left her what? Her water, why do you suppose she was at the well in the first place? 
to get water, right? And she left it there. Why? Because now something's more important. What's more important? Telling people about the guy she just met, right? She came, she spent time with Jesus, and she saw him for who he was. And so she runs back, leaving her water jar there. She runs back to the people, and what does she say? Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Does she still have questions? Yes. Just because she saw him for who he was doesn't mean she stopped having questions. Did she maybe still have some doubts? Sure. Did she, she still have all of the cultural baggage and all of her background and all of her preconceived ideas? Absolutely. But she could see him for who he was and she did what was only logical. She went and invited others to see what she had seen, to see who she had seen, to hear what she had heard. So she runs to town. She says, can this be the Christ? And they, the townspeople, went out of the town and were coming to him. And if you keep reading in the story, what happens? They come and they see. And eventually they say, now we believe, not because of what she said, but now we believe because we've seen for ourselves. We've heard you for ourselves. We've spent time with you for ourselves. See, that's it all throughout the Gospel of John. Come. Just come. I'm not asking you to drop your questions. I'm not asking you to drop your skepticism. I'm not asking you to drop your doubts. I'm asking you to come and see. Come. Spend time with Jesus. Listen to him. Watch him. Study him. And we believe if you spend enough time with him, you'll see him for who he is. And then the natural next step when someone sees is that they invite. So we see the same pattern all throughout the gospel. They came, they saw, and they invited others. And I think that's exactly not only what Jesus is doing in the story, but what John is doing with his gospel account. Right? He knows that everyone who's reading this gospel account has questions. Everyone has doubts. Everyone has skepticism. Even those that are already committed to following Jesus. And he's inviting them to come, maybe come again, and see. And then invite others. And that's how the world has been changed, hasn't it? That, that's why you know about this Jesus of Nazareth. Because these people in the first century, they came, spent time with Jesus, or they spent time with the apostles after Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand. Those people came and they saw in Jesus the one who could give them what they were seeking. And they saw him for who he was. And then they went and they invited other people. And they said, hey, you've got to see what I've seen. You've got to hear what I've heard. They came, they saw, they invited. John would say at the end of his gospel account, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's, that's what evangelism is, isn't it? You came, you saw, and now you want to invite the people that you love and the people that you know to come and see. You're not saying, I can answer all of your questions. Hey, we have answers for all of your questions. Nope. We're not saying, if you come here, you won't have any more doubts. You won't have any more fears. You won't have any more skepticism. Nope. What we're saying is, come and see Jesus. Come and listen to Jesus. Come and study Jesus. Come and watch Jesus. And we believe that you'll see in him what we've seen in him. And that has happened over 2,000 years, 
countless numbers of times, millions and millions and millions of times. You that are parents and grandparents, that's what you've done with your kids, isn't it? You came to Jesus, you saw him for who he was, and now you're inviting your kids to come listen to Jesus. You bring them here to Bible class because you want them to see what you've seen and understand what you've understood. And so that, that's, my, that's my request even just this week. Come, come, let's talk about Jesus together this week. Come, let's, let's explore Jesus. Let's study Jesus together. And maybe even those of us that have been following him for decades will see something in Jesus we hadn't seen before or will be reminded about something that we had forgotten or will be inspired by Jesus to go and invite somebody else. Come, come see my Jesus. Come see my brother. Come see my friend. Come see my Lord. Come see my King. Come see my Deliverer. Come see and invite. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, I'm once again so incredibly thankful to be here this week and to be with these wonderful Christian people from Katie. And Father, I pray that you bless our time together this morning, that you may be glorified, that our lives might be shaped and changed and transformed by Jesus. Thank you, Father, for sending your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, puts their faith in him, follows him, might not perish, but might have everlasting life. Thank you for that promise and that assurance. May we rejoice in that. And Father, may we invite others to come and see what we've seen. Thank you, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church.